0: Welcome to Amici, News and Insight from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. Last month, we featured the Honorable Norman St. George, the Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for the Courts Outside New York. This month, and in recognition of Women's History Month, we're joined by the Honorable Deborah Kaplan, the Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for the Courts Inside New York City. Reciting Judge Kaplan's resume would consume the rest of this program, but in a nutshell, Before undertaking her current role in October 2021, Judge Kaplan was the administrative judge for one of the busiest courts in the nation. She also served as statewide coordinating judge for family violence cases and was at the forefront of raising awareness of elder abuse. Judge Kaplan, a judge for over 20 years, co-chairs the New York State Justice Task Force. She chairs the New York State Judicial Committee on Elder Justice, and she's a member of the New York State Judicial Committee on Women in the Courts, as well as the Advisory Committee on Court Access for People with Disabilities. She's also past president of the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York. With that brief introduction, I'm pleased to welcome Judge Kaplan to Diversity Dialogues. Judge, let's start at the present and work our way backward, if that's okay. So what exactly does a deputy chief administrative judge for the courts inside New York City do?
1: Good afternoon. Thank you, John, for inviting me to another conversation with you. I, I'm sure we'll have an enjoyable afternoon together. I think um, so. I, <laughs> well, I've now been Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for four months, so I, I think I can give you an answer to this. Um, I have oversight of all of the New York City courts in all five boroughs, which includes Supreme Court, both the civil and the criminal term, civil court, housing court, criminal court, family court, and surrogate's courts. And many of these courts are some of actually the largest and most active courts in the country. But really, John, I think that just begs the question, doesn't it? What does having oversight actually mean? So if I were to tell you everything that I do or am responsible for, there wouldn't really be any time left in our conversation. So I'm just going to try to give you a brief overview of some of what I'm tasked and honored to do. That sounds so great. I do... Great. So I deal with human resource issues. Um, cars, that's people that we're seeking to hire. I sit on interview panels or approve interview panels. I do promotions, reclassifications, alternative work schedules. I deal with all the disciplinary issues for New York City. I'm responsible for case management and operations in every single court. Right now, we're very focused on increasing our trial capacity and increasing overall in-person proceedings. But we are making sure the courts are moving forward as we return and expand to greater in-person proceedings while recognizing there really still is a a solid place for virtual proceedings as appropriate Um, i'm responsible for judicial assignments and i'm responsible for our, our new initiatives in new york city so i'll give you an example right now we are laser focused on our new york city gun case initiative which seeks to expedite the processing to final disposition of gun cases. And that plan actually began before I became deputy chief administrative judge in August 16th of 2021. But now we're refining our procedures and are implementing a plan for all New York City felony gun cases. Um, In particular, the new plan has uh, enhanced not only hearing, but our trial capacity. It outlines expectations for the other stakeholders in the New York City criminal justice system. Um, Some of the other things I do on a daily basis, facilities issues. If the roof leaks in the courthouse where you are, John, you call me. I have to address it. Technology review. I liaise with it and meet with bar associations, affinity groups, employee groups, county, city, and state agencies. Um, I've convened and I run several citywide advisory committees on the Child Victims Act, on medical malpractice cases, torts, matrimonial and guardianship, and one that's very dear to me, on hospital hearings, critically important area where people's constitutional rights uh, are also at stake who are uh, housed in a hospital setting and uh, being asked to take medication or, or being told they have to stay. Special masters and other ADR programs. So, uh, you know, that's just a few of the things that we do.
0: In light of the report by Jay Johnson that showed that we have a long way to go to reaching equity and equality in the court system, what specific challenges does that present to you as a DCAJ for the courts inside of New York City?
1: Thank you, John, for for asking me about that, because I am very pleased to uh, talk to you about that. You know... The most important challenge right now to our courts actually was that report from Special Advisor Secretary Jay Johnson on equal justice in the New York State courts. But I I actually think the report reaffirmed what we already knew, that racism and bias remain a disturbing, pernicious, shameful presence in the court system. And the report really compelled me to redouble my own commitment to uh, and amplify my efforts to dramatically improve the experience of court users ensure that no one is subjected to any sort of bias, intolerance, or disparate treatment, and they come through our doors. And there is frankly simply nothing more important than eliminating bias from court operations and creating a court system that promotes fairness and diversity and treats every person who comes here seeking relief with the respect and dignity that they deserve. I mean, that stands true for our, our own court employees and court family also, but I, I think judges are the leaders and role models in the court system. That means judges must always set the standard for non-biased behavior in all of their interactions, as well as their decision-making. And judges must make it abundantly clear by their conduct that racial bias, discrimination, and harassment will not be tolerated. But you know, John, it's not enough. It's incumbent upon judges, court leaders, upon all of us to speak out when we witness racial bias or any bias for that matter gender identity or expression, religion, sexual orientation, age, disability, whether it be within our court family or towards court users and silence is not an option. And the court's commitment and my commitment is is to zero tolerance for all forms of racial bias, discrimination and harassment and that's unwavering. The duty to enforce this policy extends to everyone working in the court system And, you know, the other related challenge I I think also critically important and urgent for me in this new position is the further diversification of the workforce in our New York City courts. And in this endeavor, I'll continue to work closely with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, the Office of Justice Initiatives, and the Franklin Williams Commission, among others. And we widely disseminate, you know, all information about job opportunities in the court. But we'll continue the use of diverse interview panels and encourage more of our judges, non judicial personnel to be on them. But hiring is only the first step, right? So we have to mentor our new hires. Our goal is to retain our employees, to promote them. We want to do whatever we can do to empower our court family to advance in the court system. So, you know, one project that we're working on with New York County Lawyers Association, the Franklin Williams Judicial Convention, and we're launching is a, a relaunching a special master's program that it's gonna take, and diversity is a big component of this. Um, Highly qualified, and and we're training them. Volunteer attorneys, many, many of color, to be assigned to specific judges to learn how to be a special master, to get a real view of what it's like to work in the court system, and hopefully to put them on the path if they'd like to uh, consider being a judge or coming to work here. But that's just one program of many that we're working on. So uh, thank you for asking me that question, John.
0: I want to follow up on one thing you said, and, and maybe we could expand on that a little bit. Hospital hearings. What, what are you seeing in that, and, and what are you seeing with that in the, in the era of COVID?
1: So before uh, I got, became the deputy chief administrative judge, I sat on a committee that had been convened by the former DCH judge, George Silver, and that put together all the stakeholders for people who were facing hearings under the mental hygiene law people who were being housed in hospitals who wanted to be released, who were being held, you know, because there had been an order directing them there or there had been an observation order, people who were being told by their doctors that they should be taking medication and they didn't want to. So before that, the pandemic came, we actually started a plan to have some of these hearings virtually, because in Manhattan, we used to have the judges go to between seven and 10 different hospitals during the course of a week to do the hearings in person. That also meant in some hospitals having to transport patients from one place to another, outside of the hospital, from one hospital to another for hearing. We decided that it might be a better way to do them virtually and we had begun those plans. So we were very well poised when the pandemic came to be able to continue those without any stoppage at all. So the first week that the courts reduced uh, in-person proceedings, And back in March uh, 17th, you know, two years ago, we were actually able to continue with the hospital hearings. And, you know, we have judges preside over them. We have lawyers, frequently either private counsel or for mental hygiene legal services. We have the doctors testify. And the judges will make a uh, finding after listening to testimony and reviewing the medical records and documents as to next steps. But I think they're critically important hearings. And I'm happy to say that we've been able to consistently do them. Our model was then adopted by the other four counties in New York City and then outside of New York City.
0: Critically important is uh, certainly a, an appropriate way to put it. I mean, they're literally, literally critically important. But also critically important are the, the, uh, the gun cases. And I know, I know you're uh, heavily involved in that. But what, what are some of the other major challenges confronting the courts in New York City right now as we speak?
1: I'm going to talk a little bit, then I'll start again with guns, since you mentioned that, and then I have some other things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, So I mentioned the gun initiative because it is very, very important in New York City. It's not a challenge just confronting our forts, but our city. And uh, our new mayor, Mayor Adams, has pointed out that just in the first month of 2022, that was among the most violent in recent memory, largely attributable to gun violence, which is, frankly, an epidemic and a public health crisis. And we are addressing the inventory of gun cases pending into Supreme Court criminal term and coming in with the development of this initiative. So we've come up with this comprehensive uh, plan. We've established something new, which is called uh, Superior Court Information um, Waiver Parts in all five boroughs. They're going into effect this week, and that will allow cases to be adjourned directly from the criminal court where the top count is after arraignment, criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree, and it'll be transferred for the uh, what we call the 180 year grand jury action day directly into Supreme Court, which is something new. At that point, we expect the district attorneys to be able to have reviewed their case and, as appropriate, make a uh, well-reasoned offer to the defendant and share discovery, share some discovery, information about the case. Then the defense you know, counsel will have uh, an opportunity to speak with their client take a, an adjournment to discuss it with their client, you know, put it over for perhaps a couple of weeks and see if there's a way that you can work out a resolution pre-indictment. That gives you an opportunity to end the case earlier and to have uh, more flexibility in resolution. During that adjournment, the defense counsel, you know, defendant through defense counsel may wish to present certain information to the district attorney to get a fuller picture from their view to come up with a resolution of the case that is fair. But if the case is then uh, there's no disposition, it's on for grand jury action. If an indictment is returned by a grand jury, it'll be arraigned in that part, and will be kept until resolution with one of our designated gun court judges. So in each county, the administrative judges have selected a team of their own judges who are going to be exclusively handling gun cases so that we have the most attention on it that the processing is thoughtful, and that there is responsibility. And, you know, we have a uh, sort of solid plan in place, I believe, and, and an expedited schedule to bring these cases to resolution. But then that puts the burden on both sides to be able to be ready to do what they need to do to move forward. We're also further down in the process going to have another substantive conference with the district attorney and the defense counsel defendant be able to see if there's a way before the hearing, as many of these cases have suppression hearings to resolve the case. And if there's not, the hearing will go forward. And if there is no resolution after the hearing, there'll be a pretty immediate trial. So we are very, very laser focused. We have put resources into these parts. We have put you know excellent judges into them, and we're going to be handling. But uh, you know, in addition to the gun issue, John, I'd like to talk about family court for a few minutes, if I could. Please do. So, Um, I don't think we can ignore the scrutiny in which our family court has been under in New York City. And I want to say it's very true that family court faced great challenges during the pandemic. But I want to say that we have an incredibly dedicated and talented group of judges and non-judicial staff who choose to work in the family court. And we also have an incredibly dynamic new administrative judge, Anne-Marie Jolly, who is visionary. And I have no doubt that under her leadership, our family court will now flourish. Um, I I think you're well aware that there's an extremely large number of cases pending in the New York City Family Court where some of really the most critically important matters are resolved, dealing with families, dealing with children. And I say this from the perspective of someone who also spent a lot of years as a matrimonial judge in the Supreme Court dealing with similar issues. But we also have to recognize that many of our family court users are unrepresented, that they're poor. That they're people of color and our mission is to ensure the same high level of justice for every single court user in every single court and i mean that when i say it to family court so we're investing a great deal of resources now and time into into family court and are committed to working with our greater group of stakeholders our partners to continue to improve access to justice and i'll just share some of that with you because i'm really a, excited about family court i think at the end of the day we will be the court that others look at in new york say how a family court should really run and function so if i may
0: absolutely please do
1: so specifically we were hiring 12 very experienced special referees and they will be assigned to the family court to address the backlog there so they will be with us in april they will immediately start doing trials handling hearings We are hiring a large group of new support magistrates dealing with support matters assigned to the custody court in the next few months and support staff for these folks. And our plan will allow us to move closer, to move up the dates of so many family court matters that were scheduled during the pandemic with much longer than acceptable dates. So that's the first immediate good thing is that we're getting people back into the family court. We're moving their cases closer in time so, their issues can be addressed. Um, updated technology is coming to family court. You know, I'm having a conversation with you using Teams, which is our Microsoft platform, but we're expanding that in family court to allow breakout rooms so that lawyers and counsel can have private conversations with each other with the court. And if we're doing our ADR in family court, well, then the mediator, the neutral, the expert, can go back and forth to two different sides and have two different conversations with some privacy and then join everyone together. We're improving our digital signage, which exists in Family Court, but we're improving it and expanding it. But I think really important and really exciting is that introducing, designing, introducing new electronic filing for Family Court. So a new and revised system that allows NICEP, which is such a wonderful program for e-filing To come to family court but to have it the first time ever be able to interface and uh, if as computers may or systems may speak to our uh, ucms which is our case management system so that orders and decisions can go back and forth so things can be easily accessed so people with the proper permissions because in family court not everybody can review certain documents can be able to to get in and get it so these we have other exciting things but i think you know these are really Good ambitious plans to address uh, streamlining family court and the backlog, and uh, changing the sort of the feel of lawyers there. I mean, you know, one of the problems with family court, John, is that the lawyers are so underpaid on the assigned counsel plan. Mm -hmm. There, There has not been a raise for so long for people who probably do among the most important work, right? So representing parents, children, you know, criminal cases on the criminal side, juvenile delinquency cases, these people are grossly underpaid, and it's hard to maintain people on the panel because of that, and that causes delay. So hopefully those rates will be uh, again addressed and raised. But we're, as I said, incorporating ADR also in the process of bringing in the new Family Court ADR coordinator. So these are all exciting things, uh, you know, to share with you.
0: Now, you've mentioned in passing uh, mediation and and ADR, and I'd like to pursue that a little bit because I know ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, is something near and dear to your heart. So, um, tell me about that. What are we doing in that, and where would you like to see that go?
1: Well, I I do love ADR, as I call it. You know, most people say it's Alternative Dispute Resolution. I I think it's Appropriate Dispute Resolution, in in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our Chief Judge, Janet DiFiore, has spoken often about ADR and its importance, to our goal of continually striving to further enhance the administration of justice in our courts. And and I'm able to quote her because I quote her all the time on this. She said, Making ADR services widely available in civil courts throughout the state, facilitating the use of such services as early as possible in a case, are major steps towards a more efficient, affordable, and meaningful civil justice process. And I quote the chief judge all the time because I talk about ADR all the time, and I couldn't agree with her more. Um, ADR is very, very likely to be more in line with the litigants' needs and goals than a trial. ADR is generally much less expensive. The resolution can be more creative than what a court could ever order, and it can be much longer lasting. And the process will be less fraught with emotion and significantly could actually preserve relationships. There's certainly more certainty and finality when the matter is resolved by agreement. You know, a lot of the civil cases come out of relationships where so people were friends and went into business together or family businesses or family relationships that something has happened. So the ability to try to preserve some of that is attractive also. Um, you know, before I became DCAJ, was fortunate enough to be appointed to this position. I was the administrative judge in the Supreme Court in New York County where we ran more ADR programs than any other court in the state. And one of my primary goals is now to expand and enhance ADR beyond there. So, um, you know, first in New York City, I would say we're greatly enhancing our programs with different city agencies, including uh, New York City Transit, New York City Housing Authority, and we have programs in four out of the five counties now. We're designing, and I'm excited about this, a plan to roll out trauma-informed mediation. I have training and a model to better serve the cases pursuant to the Child Victims Act, and that's over some 5,000 cases in New York County. We're taking the best ADR programs and adapting them for success for the civil and in the family court. You know, we do a whole lot of other cases that deal with labor and employment issues, with wage and hour issues, with everything that runs across the civil gamut with medical malpractice cases. But a lot of these programs are appropriate in the civil court as well. You know, there's going to be a jurisdictional change. It's going to go, it's now going to be $50,000 in the civil court. And I think the greatest influx of cases we will see are actually motor vehicle accidents where the insurance policy goes up to $50,000. And they're in Supreme Court now. I think they're going to go to civil court. We're already working on a program to do early alternative dispute resolution in those cases, capture them, and try to bring us to the, you know resolution. So the hiring of ADR coordinators and support staff in New York City um, to ensure we can fulfill the chief judge's mission to continue to expand ADR is critical. And while the focus is on sending cases to mediation or other ADR options, because there are others at the outset, during the pendency of every litigation, we have to remind people that ADR remains available to them.
0: Now, it's not as if you don't have enough on your plate already, but I, I know you have another leadership role as well as chair of the New York State Judicial Committee on Elder Justice. Could you speak briefly about what elder justice is and why that is an important issue for, for you, for the courts.
1: Sure. So I'm going to take a, a little step back in, in time to answer your question. Um, so you know I was the administrative judge for Supreme Court in New York County, but prior to that role, and I think you and I had a conversation about this, I was the statewide coordinating judge for family violence cases. So a critically important component of the office was our Elder Justice Initiative. And I was charged with developing programs and protocols and procedures to improve how the court system addresses the growing number of cases involving the state's older population, including allegations of elder abuse, both in the civil and the criminal context, because it it cuts so widely across the, the board. I mean, you can have domestic violence, you could have elder abuse that is physical, or you can have elder abuse that is emotional. You could have guardianship issues. You could have fraud cases. You could actually have physical abuse. I mean, it goes completely across the context. But when I was first appointed to the statewide position, I wanted to learn as much about this as possible. So uh, I and my staff, which was my principal law clerk, Joan Levinson, who's still very involved in all of this, met with nearly 250 different stakeholders, including the NYPD chief of domestic violence, the deputy commissioner for collaborative policing, All of the Department for Aging officials, state and city, the leadership, Adult Protective Services, prosecutors from DA's offices, and also from the Attorney General's office who handle elder abuse matters. Representatives from a number of legal services agencies who handle uh, elder law issues. People from JASA, the Weinberg Center for Elder Justice, Live On New York, Brookdale Center for Healthy Aging, Lifespan in Rochester, the New York City Elder Abuse Center. But then we talked to medical professionals who work in this field, the Department of Financial Services for the state, and clinical law professors, not only to educate on these issues, you know, but to the people, to representation, who deal with it every day, who see the people who are involved. And after talking to this really broad and dedicated group of professionals, I formed an interdisciplinary elder justice working group. Which then pursuant to an order by our Chief Administrative Judge uh, Marks became a standing committee of the courts, and you know there aren't that many standing committee of the courts, so I think that underscores the importance here, and, and that action, you know, really says a lot to people in the community. And I will say that we always had support uh, for this project from Chief Judge Fiore, who actually reached out to me before she became the Chief Judge to talk about this when she was the Westchester DA because she had heard about our elder justice work. So even after uh, I became an administrative judge. I remained and then state, chair of the New York State Judicial Committee on Elder Justice. As I said, Joan is a counsel to that committee and I'm dedicated to addressing those issues. So extensive training has been done across New York State and, and beyond. We've done some national training on issues involving elder abuse and financial exploitation. And as chair, I've also tried to raise awareness of the particular challenges that older adults face the most when they come to court when they come seeking resolution of an issue and what we can do to help uh, assist vulnerable older uh, court users. We created an Elder Justice Bench Card, which provides information about elder abuse and relevant laws pertaining to older adults, contains suggestions to judges and court staff how to ensure that folks are able to participate in proceedings to the fullest extent possible. And you know what, those suggestions are really applicable to anyone who comes to the court, not just older persons but I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll just uh, tell you some things, is that making sure that we have forms in a larger font so people can read it, making sure that we have the magnifiers, the guides to enlarge the font, diminishing background noise and glare, having assistive listening devices when needed, and remembering to offer somebody a break and sufficient time for a litigant or witness to process information and respond to questions. I mean, honestly, just because someone takes a little bit longer to respond to your question doesn't mean that they don't understand what you're saying to them and in the fact they understand very clearly it just might take a little bit longer to get the answer out so people need to learn some patience and and to create a more accessible and less intimidating uh, courtroom environment for older adults so John we designed the first elder friendly courtroom in New York State for the court system and that was at 60 Center Street and it was modified to have a brand new sound system and features with advanced ADA hearing components. And we brought in people who were hearing impaired in society in New York to listen, to go in to try all of the things out, to sit in different parts of the room, to sit as where the judge would sit, or where the witness would sit, or where the lawyers would be, or the jurors. We took off the sharp corners on conference tables and railings. Um, the floors were sanded down to remove glare and the blinds changed. Um, an ADA high compliant monitor was installed outside the courtroom. So when people come in, they could find out about what they're going to see when they go inside. So the example of the role of, of each party in, in the court system. What does the judge do? Who's the park clerk here? What does she or he do? What's the court officer? It talks about the information for requesting an ADA accommodation. It tells you where the nearest accessible bathroom is. Something you know I think everybody would want to know. Um, So all of those different things about elder justice, but I I just want to say I'm also honored to co-chair with the Honorable Carmen Beauchamp-Saparic, the New York State Justice Task Force, sit on the Women in the Courts Committee and the New York State Advisory Committee on uh, Court Access for People with Disabilities. So uh, I'm really lucky to be involved in all of these different uh, committees.
0: And we're lucky to have you doing that. Now, since it is Women's History Month, I'd like to discuss Women in Management. Do you think women in top management roles have a different challenge?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, despite the fact that there are many strong women leaders, and we actually have a a number of strong women leaders in the court system, bias against women in leadership roles still exists. And, for example, there was a recent study, I read about this stuff all the time, the Economic Journal, which says that, uh, quote, there's a likability bias when it comes to women. And, and what that means is that if a woman is not perceived as, you know, quote, likable, no matter how strong her leadership skills are, employees will demonstrate less cooperation, less effort for her efforts. Excuse me, less support for efforts, but uh, that doesn't hold true for men. This article bears this out. I mean, related to this idea is that men who display anger at work gain influence. Women who show similar anger lose influence. And the fact when men express anger, they're viewed as powerful and competent and, and uh, worth of a high salary. When women show anger, they're often seen as less competent, less powerful, and less worthy of a lucrative salary. I'm uh, talking largely a uh, private industry here. The reason for this seems to be that both men and women believe that male anger comes from specific external situations, whereas women's anger is seen as an internal personality trait. So a man's anger is viewed as a rational response to the world around him. But when a woman is angry, she's viewed as exhibiting generalized female weakness. So, uh, you know, this is reading a lot of articles that confirm this. So I witnessed that, John, you know, years ago, I started as a young lawyer appearing, uh, you know, in criminal court. I started as a public defender and appearing before many uh, older male judges. And uh, you could see that female attorney advocating for her client or expressing outrage uh, at the way her client was being treated. I've heard judges call other lawyers hysterical or strident. But a male attorney who might be demonstrating a similar advocacy for their client was, wow, look at that zealous advocate, how hard he's fighting for his client. So I I am hoping and I know that we are moving away from these gender-based views, but uh, still we have more to do and it'll take more time. And, uh, you know, one author states society needs to find a way to legitimize rather than demonize uh, women's anger. So, um, you know, I I would tell you I read an interesting report, McKinsey, on the COVID-19 pandemic. And it said that women are more burned out than men, given the added stress uh, and exhaustion. But at the same time, women are rising to the moment and actually are stronger leaders and taking on extra work that comes with this. And they're doing more than men to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, uh, you know, the article further tells us that women are better than men, providing emotional support to our employees, checking in on the well-being of our employees, helping them navigate work-life challenges, and taking action to prevent or manage employee um, burnout. I mean, during the pandemic, I was at the courthouse every single day through I was in the courthouse, I, I left to go home at night, but I was there the very next day. But I really thought it was critical that I be on the ground at all times, addressing whatever the challenges of the work they were. And as you could imagine, no, no limit on the number of challenges. But I wanted to be there, I wanted to physically be there to provide support to judges, to non-judicial staff, and for them to know I was available, that I was there for them and with them, and to show my appreciation which, you know, I think is critically important. Take the time at the end of the day to say thank you. Remember that, you know, people have a lot going on in their lives and be considerate and thoughtful of that also.
0: We started with the present. Let's go back to your college years. What did you study at SUNY Albany uh, where you received you both your uh, B.A. And, and a B.S.? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that, that is correct. I have a, a B.A. in English and a B.S. in English Education. And I minored in American uh, Social History. And uh, I, I love that. I love being an English major, and I, and I love being involved in student teaching.
0: Was, you, was it your intention at that point to become a lawyer?
1: Uh, absolutely not. I it wasn't even a, a thought, actually, in, in all honesty, in my mind. I thought I wanted to be one or two things or a combination of both. I thought I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write. And I wanted to teach I wanted to teach in high school, and the reason I got really thought that law school was the right path for me because I did my student teaching, you know, in a in a community outside of Albany that was impoverished, and uh, you know, had a uh, lot going on. Let's just say that. And what would happen is that when someone in a child in a student's family was arrested, or the student was arrested and, and alleged to have committed a crime or a family member had been sued or someone had you know, tried to collect from them because they had not been able to pay a bill or to, to evict them from their home, they wouldn't actually understand what was happening. It was very difficult, and the legal process is a frightening thing if you don't understand it, right? So they would come to, to the high school, and they would speak to the teacher. They would ask to speak to the teacher to explain to them what was going on to look at the documents. And while you couldn't give legal, legal advice, obviously— You could look at it and see that, you know, try to explain what the words meant to explain the process as best. At at that point, John, I said to myself, you know what, people need someone to stand up for them when they are in a situation where they are, you know, for me, it was a defendant in a criminal case. So, you know, having students who had, you know, been in that process, that was really an inspiration for me because I wanted to be the person to stand up for them in, in a very big system to have someone, you know, to fight for them and their rights, to make sure that they were, you, know, they were getting their rights were being uh, appreciated, and that they were getting good representation. So now, that that's what actually drew me to the legal system, and I became a public defender when I graduated law school.
0: And and of course, you did that with the uh, the Legal Aid Society. Now, is there is there something that you witnessed or saw or experienced as a as an attorney with Legal Aid that sparked your future interest in? family violence, domestic violence, elder abuse?
1: You know, John, at Legal Aid, I saw victims of domestic violence as well as perpetrators of domestic violence, and it was certainly troubling. And there's a a myriad of reasons why victims do not leave an abusive relationship, and many justified fears that I cannot allay. So, you know, victims don't leave, or survivors fear for their safety. They're pressured by their culture or by their family members to stay with an abusive partner. Sometimes they have children who they could not leave with or they can't leave behind. People fear deportation, or sometimes somebody feels ashamed or guilty and they hope the abuser would change their ways, and lots of times they love the abuser. So uh, I I represented a woman who was charged with incredibly serious crime in in a matter where she was charged with uh, the co-defendant was her longtime partner, and I realized because she couldn't even speak to me when he was present that he had been abusing her for so long, and I did a, a lot of, you know, investigation and work about this case. And I will say that I, I was lucky enough to uh, get off the wheel, assigned to a very good judge, who then turned out to, you know, to be on the court of appeals, who was Ted Jones. Mm-hmm. So that is who I handled this case for two years before and tried the case and, and successfully uh, went forward with the battered women's uh, defense. So I learned a lot about it. And, uh, you know, ultimately, my client, who had been battered, got in, you know, facing life imprisonment, got a very, very uh, good result. But, you know, domestic violence remains pervasive in society. I, I think you may know this, but I'll say it because, you know, people always say, why do you give the numbers? Because the numbers count. And the numbers are people. So one in four women and one in seven men will experience severe domestic violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. CDC tells us that. 1 in 10 women in the U.S. will be raped by an intimate partner in their lifetime. 17% of women and 8% of men will experience sexual violence other than rape by an intimate partner in their lifetime. But also, in tying this you know, back to, to guns, John, it's essential to know that the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the chance of homicide by 500%. Five hundred. And more than half of all the women who were killed in the U.S. are killed by an intimate partner with a gun. So, you know, just to give you a snapshot, between 2001 and 12, more women were murdered by an intimate partner with a gun than the number of U.S. troops killed in the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So, you know, still a systemic problem that we need to pay attention to and work towards eradicating.
0: That does put it into uh, uh, perspective. Now, you seem, you seem to enjoy being a, a trial attorney. You seem to enjoy being a trial judge. Why, why did you get into administration?
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, in many ways, administration found me, John. I mean, I love to problem solve. I love being a judge. But I, I always have this urge to try to figure out a way to make things better, to make them run better, to have a, a better outcome. And I've worked at all of these things, but I've been given excellent opportunities. I'm someone who likes to, to join a committee and to work on a committee, to think with other people, to collaborate, have conversations. So I've been and worked on a lot of different committees since I've been a lawyer while I've been on the bench. But I've also had the honor and the privilege to work for some wonderful judges who were administrative judges. You know, I worked for Judge Juanita Bing Newton when she was the administrative judge in Supreme Court in New York County criminal term. That was my first job within the court system, and I was grateful that she took me with her when she became our first deputy chief administrative judge for access to justice issues, a position now held so well by a D.C.A.J. Mendelson. And, and then I was fortunate enough to work for another D.C.A.J., Joseph Traficanti, because he saw my work and he asked me to work with him on implementation of, of drug courts statewide, so I got to be the first counsel for drug courts statewide and work on policy and travel throughout the state, dealing with that and you know setting up courts, certainly in New York City and Long Island and beyond. So I, I've had expanding roles, and I, I've taken the opportunity when it's been offered to me. But I think it's also a matter of working very hard, being thoughtful and, and not afraid to you know advance ideas, and thoughts and observations.
0: So what is a typical day, assuming there is such a thing in your
1: life? <laughs> well, you know, a typical work day is I, I'm here by 8 o'clock. I, I like to say, try to hit the ground running. And, uh, you know, one thing I do is a lot of meetings. You know, that, that's the joy of teams. You can actually have a meeting and actually see the person. Uh, but on Mondays and Fridays, I regularly schedule meetings with all of our administrative judges in the Supreme Court, civil term, criminal term, our three city-wide courts. Our other AJs, um, you know, Nancy Barry and Justin Barry, who head up our two largest divisions in the court system at, down at OCA. And on Wednesday, I have a larger group. That's our uh, all of our DCAJs, our division heads throughout the court system, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, our security personnel, Chief uh, Magliano, our problem-solving courts, our closure program, e-filing, counsel's office, HR, Budget and technology, and our statewide coordinating judge for matrimonial cases. It's important we have that one big meeting every week so we can find out what's going on in the court system, so we can talk about ideas, so we can share, so that everyone can take it back to their offices and their courts and do that. Um, I, I randomly picked a day last week, so I'll tell you what I did, what my schedule was. Is I met with all of the administrative judges and Supreme Court criminal term about the gun initiative, and those meetings happen sometimes daily, but there's set meetings twice a week. I've had several meetings uh, regarding the production of prisoners that day, including with the New York City agency heads that are responsible for that, Uh, in a meeting regarding a facility issue in the Bronx, where there's a a number of uh, things going on. I met with one of my Supreme Court civil term administrative judges and one of her judges regarding issues surrounding the Child Victims Act. I then met with the Brooklyn Bar president and other Brooklyn Bar members about a program that they want me to do to work on with uh, participating for their membership. I then took a break, and I gave welcoming remarks to judges participating in matrimonial mediation training. I then had a lunchtime meeting with all of the New York City Civil Court judges from all five boroughs and their wonderful uh, administrative judge, Carolyn Walker Diala. And then I had multiple meetings regarding different issues on family court. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I sat on an interview panel, interviewing people for a chief clerk position you know, with others. And in my spare time, John, I'm always writing drafts of decisions, because I'm still a working judge, and reading and editing decisions that are prepared for me by my law clerks. Writing memos, reviewing disciplinary actions, that, that was one typical day I pulled out to uh, share with you.
0: You mentioned uh, spare time. I'm surprised you have any. It doesn't sound like you've got much. Now. If, if there's a young woman in high school, college, law school, who aspires to serve as a top-level manager, what's your advice? How did they get there?
1: I think you have to be brave. I think you have to work really hard. But I think you have to be passionate about what you do and find your passion. If you're in law school, I tell you to get involved in a bar association and get involved in community groups. Join a committee in which you are interested in. Be active. This is gonna expose you to people who are actively practicing in the field who will become your mentors, who will work with you, who will form in many ways lifelong friendships. That was my experience. Try to keep those connections with older, more experienced lawyers. Ask for advice. Ask people about their experiences. Find someone who will actually be a mentor to you. That was very helpful to me. But if you're gonna find someone to mentor you, you're responsible to be a mentor for someone else. You know, here's the way I live my life. Every step you take forward, I feel you have an obligation to to reach back, pull up some other people to where you are, and then you've got to push them forward. And I have been very lucky, John, because I've had, you know, many mentors, but I've had three wonderful mentors who have always done that for me.
0: And those are?
1: Well, I'll start, of course, first with Judge Juanita Bing Newton. And then I would say... uh, of course, Judge Betty Weinberg-Ellerin, and, of course, Judge Angela Mazzarelli, you know, among others. But if, if you're three, if you're asking me that I just want to name, I would always start with those three. They've been wonderful mentors to me as, uh, you know, a newer lawyer and coming through the system as a new judge. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm giving up any confidences when I tell you that I regularly call these three women, and they call me today. And uh, I'm very grateful for that.
0: So we, dis- we discussed how to how women can position themselves to um, be in a leadership role, but once they're in that that role, that position, what is your number one piece of advice for succeeding in that role? I think, you know, it's the
1: number one role for succeeding. I have to think about this for a minute. I would say to be goal-oriented, but always be very thoughtful of others to treat people the way you would like to be treated by them. that That's incredibly important. Try to always be productive. Think of what you want to accomplish. Did I do something actionable? Obviously not in the legal sense of the work, but but did I do something? Did I do something that was better? Did, you know? I ask myself all the time, did, did I get through everything I had to do today? Did I read everything I, I needed to read? Did I respond to my emails and calls did I you know remember to say thank you to people for their work during the course of the day you know was I thoughtful about all of that and then think about how you can help in other courts in other parts in, in other ways and reach out to those people but then remember to learn something new every day right you, you should be learning at least one new thing every day or getting a new perspective so I, I think you take all of that into being a good leader And be a good leader, in my mind, is to empower others to do their job in the best way possible.
0: Judge, that's great uh, advice, and that's a great place to stop. And I want to thank you so much for your time uh, this afternoon and and for all that you do for the the courts.
1: Thank you, John. It's always a, a pleasure and a delight to speak with you, so be well. You too.